Gresham College presents The Envy of Kings, The Guildhall of London and the Power of the Medieval Corporation by Professor Simon Thurley. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's very nice to see you all. It's very nice to be back here uh, in the Museum of London, um, starting for me a new series of four lectures in which I'm going to be talking about some of the most important and interesting buildings in London and the interaction between architecture, politics, social life, and the topography of the capital city. And tonight, I am going to start with uh, a building that may be familiar to some of you, the City of London Guildhall. Uh, and I've decided to call my lecture this evening The Envy of Kings, the Guildhall of London and the Power of the Medieval Corporation. You know, I think there are very few secular buildings in England that after 600 years are still broadly used for their original purpose. And the Guildhall in the city is one of them. Although it was started uh, in 1411, it encompasses parts of pre two previous Guildhalls, uh, the first one which dates back to the 1120s. So this evening, I'm going to uh, have a look at this building. We're going to start at the beginning, and we're going to go right the way through to the end. And I'm going to try and set it in the context and ask the question all the way through, what does it tell us about London? What does it tell us about its governments? What does it tell us about the, uh, uh, the governance of the city? So the first um, Guildhall um, uh, looked probably a little like the Hall of Oakham Castle in Rutland. This building, which you see on the screen here, was built in the 1180s and is an extremely rare surviving early hall. And when you look at the extremely fine reconstruction of the Guildhall of London and its surroundings, uh, done by uh, Molas in 2007, you can see uh, what they think the hall looked like. And um, uh, I think it probably looked a little bit more like that. It probably had aisles, but there we are. That's what they've, that, what they've shown, and I think it gives a very good uh, representation. And it was while this building was standing that the City of London's powers were crystallised and it won its treasured judicial and political privileges from the Crown, as well, of course, as its first mayor. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this this evening because the story I really want to focus on starts in 1298, as it was probably then when the idea to create a new civic centre in the centre of the city was hatched. The initial impetus for this may have been to build a civic chapel, but by the 1330s, there was also uh, an intention to rebuild the Guildhall. But to do this, as always, the city needed a wealthy sponsor. And it's likely to have found it in Sir John Pulteney, uh, a financier who, thanks to a shrewd financial nose, became one of the richest men in England. Now, today, he is best uh, remembered for his house called Penshurst Place in Kent, which was begun in 1338-9. And at the heart of this was a magnificent great hall, which you see here, and incredibly, it is today much as Pulteney left it. Penshurst and Pulteney were as grand as it got, and if you want to envisage the second Guildhall, uh, take a train to Penshurst and enjoy its unspoilt magnificence. The new Guildhall was much more sophisticated than its predecessor and reflected the increasing complexity of the job of governing the city. Here is a plan uh, of it. Uh, in its undercroft, and of course the undercroft survives, you can still go to see the uh, undercroft of this Guildhall, um, probably met the court of Hustings. And above, and this plan shows the, the first floor, in the main hall met the Common Council, uh, in the main body of the hall here, uh, and the mayor's court, which you see uh, met up here. Um, but the new Guildhall was not just a building. 
it was, in fact, a district, or to give it its technical term, it was a precinct. The first Guildhall had stood alone. The second one was defined by gatehouses and seven-foot-high walls. It had no facade to the street, no real visibility to the outside world. It was completely hedged in by houses, shops, and other buildings. Um, and here you see the gatehouses you'd have to go through to get into the yard outside um, and get uh, access to the Guildhall itself. Now, you could argue that this was for security, as medieval London, of course, was a turbulent place. But to be quite frank, a seven-foot-high wall was unlikely to deter any serious rioter. In fact, the Guildhall was far from being alone. London, at this date, was a city of precincts. In all, there were more than 20 religious institutions in the city, each one of which was set in a walled enclosure, just like a modern cathedral close. So, today, when you visit Canterbury, you walk down the street, you see the gatehouse, you're almost completely unaware that the cathedral is there um, through the gate as you walk past. When you eventually go through it, you see the cathedral on the other side. Now, within the, the precinct uh, of the, uh, the Guildhall, uh, there was a magnificent chapel, um, probably built by the king's own craftsmen. To this uh, was added in 1356 a chantry college of five priests. That's to say, um, a chapel that was staffed with a residential corpus of uh, priests saying mass for the souls of the dead. This wasn't a sort of mini-monastery. It was more like a, a life, or perhaps I should say death insurance policy for the aldermen of the city. Um, a, in addition to the chapel within the precinct, there was a hall which was used as the main market for woolen cloth, which, of course, by this stage was London's principal export. And all these buildings, and I, this reconstruction begins to show it, were probably set in uh, uh, nice gardens uh, and orchards um, uh, um, uh, around the outside, planted with trees and flowers. So this precinct was the civic, economic, and judicial hub of the city. Now, the largest of all the city precincts uh, wasn't the Guildhall precinct, it was the precinct of St. Paul's. Uh, this uh, precinct was home to perhaps 300 people, as many as a small city parish. And the city government, I think, rather resented the uh, independence of this huge um, enclave. Um, this just is a line showing um, where, where, obviously, this is the medieval cathedral, there's the Wren building underneath. Um, you can see how large it was. Here's Paternoster Square. And there were gatehouses, um, um, six gatehouses, go le leading into this uh, walled precinct. But I think St. Paul's, although it's very close to the Guildhall precinct, isn't, in fact, the most appropriate parallel for the Guildhall. The place that the Guildhall looked to was far more ambitious because it was, in fact, Westminster Palace. Westminster which you see here. This is the end of Westminster Abbey. This is Henry VII's chapel. This is the surviving uh, Westminster Hall. And the Houses of Parliament now are located um, in this uh, zone uh, here. Uh, this was the principal royal palace of England and had been since the reign of Edward the Confessor. And at its heart was this extraordinary um, hall, which had been started by William Rufus in 1097. This was the ceremonial throne room of um, England. And, like the Guildhall, it contained the law courts that sat in the, symbolic president, uh, in the symbolic presence of the king's marble throne on a dais at the high end of the hall. The palace itself was set in a walled precinct, uh, which you can see the dotted line of here, with a massive great gateway here, the wall coming across here, a very, very high clock tower, 
and then the wall coming down to a water gate, which allowed you to come and go uh, on your barge, and the wall went down by the river here um, and continued. And in the corner here is the Jewel Tower, which still exists. Um, here's the Victoria Tower in the House of Lords. You can still see it, the corner of the precinct before you come over here. So this is the royal, great royal precinct in uh, Westminster. And here um, is a view um, by Holler showing the outer court of the precinct. So you are looking at this angle here, all right? Uh, there is the, the clock tower. You see, it's a pretty big thing. There is the gatehouse. Here you are in the outer precinct, and here is the entrance to the hall. Clock tower, gateway, entrance to the hall. Um, and it had this wonderful fountain in the middle, which um, on great occasions was linked to a cistern up here, which they filled with uh, red wine, and it poured out wine for the um, uh, amusement of the um, populace. Um, only the... Um, the um, so so, so this, this, this precinct, I think, is the, uh, the direct parallel for what's happening in the city. Like the Guildhall, it wasn't a religious um, zone, it wasn't a domestic zone, it was a civic, it was a judicial, it was a ceremonial space. Now, between about 1411 and 1450, the City of London drove a campaign of civic improvements. And the star of this was to be yet another new Guildhall. This one was to be built by the mason John Croxton, and it was commissioned by the Lord Mayor Richard Whittington. And this is the hall that survives to this very day, preserving in its western half the undercroft of the building which I've just been talking about. This room, uh, built by Croxton and Whittington, when it was completed, was the second largest secular space in England. Only Westminster Hall was larger. It's nearly 50 metres long and 17 and a half metres wide, and it was an engineering feat to cover it. As far as we know, uh, unlike Westminster Hall, it was covered with great, uh, a great stone vaulted roof with great stone um, arches. Inside, uh, there were daises at each end, here and here, where the courts could be held. On the north side was the entrance to the most important court, which, of course, was the Lord Mayor's Court, here in a separate building. And off to the side, in a little uh, court here, was the Alderman's uh, Court. And I think it's interesting that uh, the most, uh, most of the really important rooms were rebuilt um, smaller uh, and warmer and more comfortable, while the Great Hall was built bigger uh, and grander without any form of heating. Why didn't Croxton simply build uh, courtrooms for these courts as well instead of, the, instead of leaving them in this huge um, unheated hall? The answer to this is the clue to understanding this building. The importance of what was being uh, built here is because uh, Croxton's Guildhall was no ordinary building. It was a deeply traditional structure steeped in rich symbolism. You see, great halls are the fundamental building unit of English architecture from the Saxons until after the Civil War. Long before the Normans conquered England, the Great Hall was the centre of gravity of life for the rich, their families, and their retinues. But what the Normans were to do was to build one hall that was to change all the rules. And this, of course, was the hall that I've already mentioned, built at Westminster Palace by William the Conqueror's son, William Rufus. Rufus's hall stood as the great royal throne room until in 1393, Richard II, who you see here sitting on his throne, decided to modernise it, a project that he completed in 1401. He retained the massive uh, Norman walls here and here, um, but he inserted big new Gothic uh, windows um, into them, and the Norman roof was place, replaced by the largest and most important 
piece of carpentry in Western Europe, this spectacular hammer beam roof, which you see here in this drawing. And on each of these hammer beams, these are the pieces that stick out here, you can see there was a massive angel holding the arms of England. This roof was thus a representation of the heavens spread out over the earthly court of Richard II. And this was not the only religious connotation in the hall, because on the south wall, behind the dais here, there were six niches. One, two, three, four, five, six. They're still there. Um, and these contained figures of kings, rather like a cathedral pulpitum. So here's York's, York Minster, niches containing figures of kings. And it wasn't only the inside that had these religious connotations, because when you went outside, the entrance facade, which you see here, was treated like a cathedral or an abbey. So, like a cathedral or the abbey, it had two great towers here. And, low down here, there was a screen of niches. And the niches, 27 of them, contained statues of English kings and queens. So, King Richard II's Westminster Hall absolutely uniquely in English architecture sought equivalent status with the most important religious buildings. This, of course, was a comment on his particular take on kingship. <coughs> now, if William Rufus's Great Hall was influential... Richard's new hall, which I've just given you a, a tour of now, was absolutely mesmerising. And as Dick Whittington and his architect contemplated the new guild hall, it was this that they looked towards. Unquestionably, this was the model for the guild hall. But the guild hall and its courts were again part of a larger and more ambitious plan that included the rebuilding of the Guildhall Chapel and, uh, and the college buildings next to it, and building a new library. The library was paid for by the executors of Richard Whittington. And it probably looked a bit like this building. You may know this. This is Frommen's Chantry, the library that was built at Winchester College in 1425-46. to 46. And then there was the new chapel, which, like the Guildhall itself, took 20 years to build. This is Caroline Barron's reconstruction of the Guildhall, drawn by the late, very brilliant Terry Ball. Uh, you can see the Guildhall here. And this is the chapel, which uh, went uh, with it. And here you see Molas's reconstruction of the whole precinct as it existed by 1450. So um, here you have the gatehouses. Uh, you're in the outer courts here. There is the massive, massive great hall. Um, and here is the, um, uh, the, the, the Chantry Chapel next door and the um, library. Now, we have to remember that the merchants who were the aldermen and lord mayors uh, were highly cosmopolitan people, and they would have seen uh, the civic halls in the cities with which they traded across uh, Europe. And they would have been extremely aware that these uh, great city halls of Europe were showpieces, advertising the splendour of the town corporations uh, which built them. So, you'll all be familiar with this one from your holidays. This is, of course, the Palazzo Publico in Siena. This is, of course, much older. Uh, it's begin, begun in the 1290s and completed in 1344. And this huge show facade faces right onto the main square of the city. And it is this uh, which is what the great town halls of Flanders and Brabant did in Northern Europe. So we go to Bruges, where you may also have been on your holidays. This is the 
Hotel de Ville in Bruges, built in 1376 to 1420. So it's completed about the same time as the Guildhall of London. Um, and this building, uh, as you will recall if you've been there, completely dominates the um, city square, as does uh, the Brussels um, Hotel de Ville, extended in... Um, his Brussels extended in 1444 to 55, but it was first built more or less at the time of the London Guildhall in 1402 to 1420. Now, when we look at other medieval guildhalls built in England, we don't see anything remotely as grand as these examples I have given you from Europe. Well, First of all, the English towns were nothing like as rich, and their guild halls are generally rather a poor lot compared to their direct trading partners across the Channel. So, let's go to Norwich. Here we are. Norwich, of course, uh, was England's second largest city for much of the Middle Ages, uh, a very, uh, very big, very prosperous town with extraordinary trading links across the North Sea into the Baltic with the Hanseatic towns. Um, it was given its uh, uh, charter of incorporation in 1404, and it immediately set out to build itself this guildhall. There it is. Uh, uh, the merchants here um, were perfectly aware of the appearance of the city uh, halls of the places with which they were trading. Um, and like its continental cousins, this guild hall sits in the main market square in a rather sort of English way, making as big a uh, splash um, as, it, uh, as it could. It's impossible to believe that if Richard Whittington and his fellow aldermen had wanted to build a show building like Bruges or even Norwich that they wouldn't have built one. They could have bought up the neighbouring land or they could have swapped land to give the London Guildhall a street frontage. They could have even given uh, London a central square like Norwich or Bruges or like most other leading uh, trading centres elsewhere in the world. But the new London Guildhall wasn't an excuse for not having built something that looked like Bruges. Because the London Guildhall set out to achieve something completely different. Now, as we all know, size is important. And on a European scale, the London Guildhall was very big. Here is the Palais de Justice in Rouen, started in 1499. Spectacular, public, and with a hall exactly the same size as the London Guildhall. So it wasn't size that the London Guildhall lacked. It was showmanship. You see, English medieval buildings um, are interested in show, but they tend to rely on surprise and confinement rather than simple visual excess. So, if you consider English cathedrals, I don't know whether you've noticed, but they are always set in closes in uh, the corner of a town. So, uh, here you see um, a close, cathedral close, you can see the gates here, um, a, a, a cathedral completely and utterly um, hedged in in the middle of um, a town. Whereas, um, if you go to uh, Milan, uh, there's no wall, there's no nothing. There it is, in your face, showing off. You don't have to go through um, to anything inside. So, um, this tradition um, uh, perhaps isn't quite enough to explain why the London Guildhall is such a reticent building compared with somewhere like Bremen. But uh, it does uh, explain that there is a totally tradition, a different tradition in England of placing your public buildings within cities. So there is the concept of the precinct, but I think to get 
to the heart of why the Guildhall looked as it did, we need to consider something else. And that is the English love of processions. Now, when you look at English public and ceremonial architecture before about 1700, you will see that the English basically always preferred entourage to architecture. Magnificent dress, velvets, pearls, laces, horse trappings, banners, trumpets, flags, litters, and above all, extravagant number of attendants were the stuff of English royal and civic pageantry. Here is that um, famous painting at Hampton Court, the embarkation, Henry VIII getting onto his boat, and it, oops, and here you see um, great parade um, of courtiers uh, when people came to the Tudor court. What they uh, commented on most of all was the extraordinary number of people rest, dressed in extraordinary um, rich clothes. Um, this is the coronation procession of Edward VI. So here is the Tower of London. Uh, here is the, the city. This is St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, and here is the procession going through the streets, going down here, going here, going around here, around here, around here, going here to Westminster. And here are the, you know, the thousands of people all watching, people hanging out of their windows, the, their houses draped with tapestries and carpets and flags. This is what the English really liked. And the medieval streets of London were not just functional arteries for conveying people and goods. They were also ceremonial routes. They were the pathways for religious and civic processions that studied the annual calendar. And central to this was this concept that I've been talking about of the precinct and the linkages between the individual precincts in the uh, city. And so the clergy at St. Paul's Cathedral would process around their precinct on feast days of the year, and during Whit Week, there was a huge diocesan-wide uh, procession round the whole city. Now, this isn't St. Paul's Cathedral. This isn't even an English manuscript. But what it shows is an ecclesiastical procession going round um, a, a, a church. And here is Cardinal Wolsey uh, riding on his donkey. Um, he's here, Lord Chancellor, and he's in a procession. He is processing from his house at York Place down um, King Street to uh, Westminster Hall, um, going through the, um, the gate of the precinct of Westminster uh, Palace to the Court of Star Chamber in the Great Hall, where he's going to sit um, in judgment and hear um, the court cases. So these processions from precinct to precinct are absolutely vital. But I think that the thing that is uh, uh, really interesting is the way that the Guildhall uh, precinct linked into the rest of the city. So the mayor, the sheriffs, and the aldermen would process from the Guildhall, from their precinct, to St. Paul's, to its precinct, and back again on Christmas Day. And they would do it on seven other major feast days every year. And from the 12th century, monarchs too would process from Westminster, their precinct, to St. Paul's, uh, which they regarded as the great public arena for public uh, royal pomp and spectacle. And on the 28th of October, all three great London precincts were linked together as the newly elected Lord Mayor, uh, Mayor as he was then, he wasn't Lord Mayor by then, the new, uh, Mayor would ride from the Guildhall to Westminster Palace, to take the oath at the Exchequer and then ride from Westminster Palace to St. Paul's to offer prayers before returning to the Guildhall. But although this love of entourage gets us closer to understanding the Guildhall, it doesn't quite get us all the way because there's also the issue of status and precedent. Other than the members of his own family, the only one of his subjects with whom monarchs ever dined in state was the Lord Mayor of London, his Queen Victoria. 
The mayor enjoyed exceptional status within the city. Everyone other than the king himself had to give way to him there. Even the brothers of King Henry V were forced to sit next door to the mayor in the city and not above him. Matthew Philip, who was mayor in 1463 to 4, walked out of a banquet that was given in his honour by the king's sergeants because the Earl of Worcester had been accorded precedence. He went straight home. He sat down to such a massive feast that the sergeants, who by then had turned up to apologise, were first dazzled, then embarrassed, then horrified, and then ashamed. These facts would not have been lost on Richard Whittington nor on John Carpenter, the common clerk of the city and Whittington's close friend and executor. The common clerk was the permanent paid officer of the city in charge of the secretariat and of record keeping. And Carpenter was responsible for compiling something known as the Liber Albus, a compendium of law and custom within the city of London. So, as Whittington and Cropston embarked on the reconstruction of the Guildhall precinct, they'd have been very aware that they were dealing with a grouping of ceremonial buildings that were going to be used by an office second only to the monarch himself. Just as the mayor was king in his little kingdom, the square mile, so the Guildhall was to be his palace. And this is why I suggest Whittington, Carpenter and Croxton all looked to Westminster. Both had huge great halls containing courts, both had chapels, both had a college of priests, both were walled, both were entered by gatehouses, and both entrance facades conveyed messages about the nature of power. No other civic building in England was so endowed. The Guildhall complex was a deliberate and direct recreation of Westminster Palace. But there is a difference, and to understand this, we need to look at one part of the Guildhall that I have not yet mentioned, and that is the porch, which you see in Caroline's uh, reconstruction here. This structure faced Guildhall Yard. It was the public face of England's wealthiest corporation, and it looked it. The whole surface was covered with blank arcading and niches, containing uh, four-foot-high statues. At the top was Christ in majesty. Below, on the next level, were figures representing law and learning. Then flanking the central archway, four more figures, female figures, representing the virtues of discipline, justice, fortitude, and temperance, all of them trampling vice beneath their feet. If you remember, I said that Richard II had covered his great hall with figures too. But for Richard, there were two messages he was emphasising. First, that he was chosen by God to rule. And the second conveyed by the statues outside the hall was that his blood could be traced back to Edward the Confessor. For the mayor, there was a totally different message. God was at the top, yes, But beneath God was learning and the law upon which the city government had to rely. And the figures below that were a message to the mayor that he needed discipline, justice, fortitude and temperance in order to exercise his high office. Well, during the Great Fire, both St Paul's uh, Cathedral and the Guildhall were uh, damaged but not destroyed. Uh, The Guildhall, as we know, was repaired. Um, Sorry, there's the fire, Uh, in case you're in any doubt. Um, The Guildhall uh, was repaired, um, and the the cathedral was rebuilt. And in the process, both of them lost their precincts. St Paul's now is the only historic cathedral in England that doesn't have a cathedral close. It sits in the centre of the city, just like a continental cathedral as a civic monument. And exactly the same thing happened to the Guildhall. 
We don't know who for certain was in charge of the reconstruction work there, but it is likely to have been Sir Christopher Wren and Robert, Robert Hooke. Away went the gatehouses, away went a corner of St. Lawrence Jury and several other buildings, and in their stead, a new forecourt was uh, built. So there's, uh, there's the hall, there's the porch, and there is the forecourt. As you can tell, someone has got the scales just a little bit uh, muddled up here. Um, this uh, building was very much influenced uh, by uh, the architectural fashion of the day, the obsession with copying Versailles, the plans uh, that Wren uh, that had um, at uh, Chelsea Hospital, where there was a big forecourt in front, and on his unfinished um, palace uh, here, which he designed at Winchester, a huge big, big forecourt. Uh, this is uh, what was uh, the inspiration for um, the Guildhall uh, yard, this uh, forecourt here, um, giving uh, the, uh, the Guildhall um, a setting. Well, under Charles II, of course, um, England was a trading nation, and London was a big and important European city. But what was to happen after 1700 changed um, everything. London overtook Paris as the largest city in Europe, and after a century of growth and technological innovation, the Royal Navy smashed the French fleet at the Battle of Trafalgar. Suddenly, Trafalgar, uh, sorry, suddenly Britannia, in the words of Thomas Arne's opera, ruled the waves. It was not only capital and goods that flooded into the port of London, it was inspiration and imagination, it was exoticism, and it was new architectural styles. Now, um, a painter called uh, William Hodges, with the encouragement of Warren Hastings, who was the first governor-general of Bengal, published a series of views of Indian buildings in 1785-8. to eight. And from 1795, uh, a man called Thomas Daniel uh, published uh, a book called Oriental Scenery, which had 144 aquatints based on his extensive travels in India and included Mughal, Hindu, and medieval monuments. And after 1803, when the British uh, finally occupied Delhi, the capital of the collapsing Mughal Empire, uh, tourists had uh, access to the great monuments of the vicinity, including um, Agra and the Taj Mahal, which Daniels and others hadn't been able to see before. Now, the, the flood of these prints coming into London, showing this great civilization that no one had seen before, had a huge effect on both architects and patrons. Architects were suddenly presented with new stylistic opportunities, and patrons were able to display their taste and knowledge by uh, using new styles. And fascinatingly, the City Corporation was, I think, uh, almost the first patron to seize the opportunity to use the new Hindu style. This is spelt uh, at the time um, H-I-N-D-O-O, the new Hindu style um, at the Guildhall. And um, here it is. Here is the um, Guildhall uh, porch, uh, designed by uh, George Dance, who was a city architect. Uh, he was the man who built Newgate Prison. Um, and here he was, after building this very austere building, uh, uh, creating this, oops, well, actually, there, was another, there, there it is today. I'll stick with the old photograph for, for a moment. Um, this uh, extraordinary confection here um, with these sort of mad uh, uh, um, combination of, um, uh, of, of Hindu uh, 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 inspiration plus bits of Greek revival plus bits of Gothic Plus, of course, the, the, the structure that remained from the original um, uh, medieval uh, building. Um, and, in fact, uh, the, uh, um, the structure that we have today, which you see here, uh, was actually based on some of the engravings provided by Hodges. Now, of course, this is a wonderful uh, example of eclecticism, the mixing of styles, and historicism, looking back into the past to inform the present, but it was also a very self-conscious choice. Because by 1788, the date in which this was completed, London was unequivocally 
the center of world trade. And goods and capital flowed back and forth from the Indian subcontinent. This new porch, with its exotic references to India, showed that the city wasn't a parochial or provincial economic force. It was, in fact, a global uh, trading power. But what uh, I think um, is interesting about this is that at the same time uh, that the corporation uh, commissioned this extraordinary porch from George Dance, they also uh, commissioned a new room for the meeting of the Court of Common Council. This is what he built. It's a spectacular, wonderful room, uh, tragically demolished in 1908, uh, an example of one of those rooms that, uh, if it had survived, would be uh, universally recognised as one of the most influential pieces of architecture of its time, because this uh, roof uh, form here inspired John Soane to build his extraordinary interiors in the Bank of England and, uh, and elsewhere. Um, but, of course, now it's gone. It, it, it's sort of lost, lost to history. But when it was uh, um, completed in the 1780s, it was the most elegant and it was the most original internal public space in the city of London. And it was in an absolutely modern style. This wasn't at all uh, an essay in eclecticism or historicism or any other ism like the porch outside. In other words, the corporation felt it had no need to take the Hindu style to its heart. The Hindu style was all about external projection, about external image and perception. It was an advertisement for the outward-looking attitude of the city's uh, governing um, body. Um, however, despite um, this uh, architectural flourish uh, on the outside, I'm talking about the porch, the corporation was as much if not more, about the protection of its ancient rights and privileges, about reinforcing the closed shop that was uh, cities, uh, the, the city's government, as it was uh, about advertising its um, commercial virility. And as a result, uh, the corporation became increasingly obsessed with its medieval origins, and the next changes in the Guildhall uh, reflected this um, intense interest. In the um, 1860s, the city architect was the great Sir Horace Jones. And he started the process of undoing some of the 18th century alterations to the medieval uh, uh, Guildhall. And he started uh, re-Gothicizing it. He was also commissioned to build an extension to the uh, building for a museum um, and um, a library which you see here, there's uh, Guildhall, uh, there's uh, the library and museum um, attached to it. These uh, were really uh, impressive buildings, uh, completed in 1872. Uh, but uh, what you can't see, which uh, Horace Jones did, because it was destroyed in 1940, was the most important addition to the comple complex, which was his astonishing um, there's the inside of the sorry. There's the inside of the library. Of course, that still exists today. You can still go in there and see it. The bookcases have gone because the library's moved. Um, but this is the extraordinary uh, building that Horace Jones built. The council chamber, the centre of the Guildhall, a sort of twelve-sided Gothic chapter house uh, with um, an iron frame soaring up to this extraordinary um, great uh, dome on the top the heart of the governance of the city of London in this medievalizing building, giving the message that nobody could escape that the city was the oldest governing uh, uh, body um, in the uh, country. Well, um, the reason, of course, we don't have that fine building today is because the war, um, Second World War um, destroyed it, and the architect chosen to rebuild the Guildhall afterwards, was Sir Giles Gilbert Scott, the architect of Liverpool Anglican Cathedral, 
but perhaps better known to um, this audience here as the architect of Bankside Power Station, now Tate Modern. And he repaired the medieval Guildhall with great care, but had much less respect for the other um, things on the site. Uh, this was swept away, and he, um, I'm sorry about this, I can tell I didn't take this picture myself, I pinched it from somebody else, um, but anyway, you can see um, these are the administrative buildings on the north side of the Guildhall that took their place. And these, build, the, the, these new offices were, of course, absolutely essential. The corporation, like all other local authorities after the war, was taking on a much wider range of, range of responsibilities. And these required uh, matching uh, by managing by professional officers. And um, this building to the north side of the medieval hall, I'm actually rather a fan of. Um, and I think you can see a little bit of Tate Modern in the carefully designed um, brickwork, this very sparing use of, um, of, of stonework, and a sort of fusion of architectural styles. And with an eye of faith, oops, with an eye of faith, you can sort of see an echo of the Guildhall Park porch um, on the um, other side. Um, and this building uh, is a clever building because it's built at a time when there were very, very few building materials. It's built in 1955 to 1958. Uh, and it uh, makes quite a big impression with uh, quite um, a, a, a little um, amount of material. Well, when um, Sir Giles died in 1960, rather um, remarkably, his son, Richard Gilbert Scott, uh, took things on from the corporation. Uh, the reconstruction of the Guildhall was far from complete, uh, and he turned his attention to the Guildhall yard. Now, this is obviously an earlier um, plan, but here you see the Guildhall, and just to remind you how incredibly narrow um, the Guildhall Yard was in the 1950s. It was just literally uh, that wide. It was so narrow that a London taxi with its brilliant turning circle couldn't turn around in it. If a taxi went in like that, it had to reverse out. And as you can imagine, this caused complete chaos on ceremonial occasions. <laughs> and so the plan was to demolish this sort of conglomeration here of Victorian and Edwardian buildings to make a fashionable, fashionable precinct. Now, it's very interesting that word precinct comes back in the early 1960s. But, of course, the 1960s precinct shouldn't trigger in your minds an idea of a cathedral close. It should trigger the idea of a 1960s shopping precinct <laughs> because that was the inspiration. And so the works of 1969 to 1975 included the demolition of Church Passage, of George Dance's office range, and the memorial drinking fountain of St. Lawrence's Jury. And this uh, enabled an enlarged um, Guildhall yard, sorry, that's a little bit out of focus, um, to be created. And the design uh, in, in involved this very brilliant uh, ambulatory, this sort of cloister, that linked the medieval Guildhall with uh, the modern office block, which was to contain the library, which is going to move from the Victorian building, um, and the, uh, the offices of the corporation. And this um, ambulatory here, this, this cloister, was actually uh, based on the principle of fan vaulting, uh, the fan vaults uh, of um, Henry VII's chapel, etc. And it was deliberately uh, created to... Uh, form a, uh, a link between old and new. Um, a very, very difficult thing to do, um, but something that I think um, was achieved um, rather well. Well, the final stage in the hugely long, expensive, and ambitious post-war reconstruction of the Guildhall uh, began in 1997, again under Richard Gilbert Scott, with D.Y. Davis Associates uh, on the side. And this uh, was a, the final new building. Oh, that's the, the library from the side. Um, here we are. Um, which was to be uh, on the site of the old bomb-damaged da Guildhall um, Art Gallery, Courts of Law, and Chapel. And this building uh, now, of course, acts as the city's art gallery. 
Now, what I think is so interesting about um, all these post-war um, changes to the Guildhall site was that they had the effect of opening it up again. During the 19th century, it had become more enclosed. It had become boxed in by, quite frankly, not very good Victorian buildings. What the corporation did in the 1970s was to open up this great precinct. So why did this happen? Was it because the building was now gradually becoming democratised? As the corporation modernised itself, did it want to open up its face to the public? Just as Dance's porch had been an advertisement to the city traders of the global reach of the city, was the new forecourt a sign of a newly democratic institution embracing the modern world? Maybe. Or was it to solve a more prosaic and mundane problem? Actually, the driving force was that the corporation wanted to build a forecourt that would allow hundreds of people to arrive by taxi at great banquets, the Queen to arrive in her Rolls Royce, and the Lord Mayor's coach to do a turn in front of his Guildhall. This, ladies and gentlemen, was a traffic scheme. <laughs> the dominating theme in town planning of its age. It was about the motor car not, uh, and the smooth organisation of civic uh, ceremonial. But I think that this had all changed quite a lot by 1997. I was the director of this museum, the Museum of London in those days, and the corporation was acutely aware that it did need to modernise and it did need to share the great riches that it had in terms of art, architecture and culture more widely. While the Guildhall Yard had not been a democratising of the Guildhall, the Guildhall Art Gallery, which you see here, unquestionably was. This was a totally first-rate building to show the corporation's collections to the public. Of course, it could double as a venue, but its raison d'etre was public access. Well, where does that leave us um, tonight? Well, despite attempts over the ages, the mayor, of course now the Lord Mayor, is still king in his kingdom, and the Guildhall is still his official palace. The very fact that the Guildhall is still in use shows that the corporation is deeply aware of its ancient roots and ancient privileges. And unquestionably, the Guildhall is representative of both. But the Guildhall Yard today reflects not the desire of the corporation to ape royal architecture and symbolism, but thanks to the reconstruction completed in 2000, it does, I think, genuinely represent the face of a modern democratic institution that's physically and intellectually open to the public. If you haven't had a look at the building recently, I very much hope that my lecture this evening has inspired you to go out and have a poke around in the dark recesses of the Guildhall. Thank you. <laughs> For all information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.